Father, your word is the truth that that this world needs so bad, Lord, and and you have given it to us in such a plain and and simple way, Lord. But it's it, your word is deep and and all truth that we need uh, all to to know you is contained in your word, Lord, and. And I just ask today that, that uh, you just encourage us to be the kind of Bereans that study your word and are equipped by your word to, to recognize false doctrine, to recognize false teachers. Because, Lord, as you're going to show us today, uh, there's many uh, false teachers who have gone out into the world to, to deceive the masses and and Lord, uh, you can find them just about anywhere. And so I just ask today that, that Lord, you, again, just show us how we can be prepared to, uh, to, to not be the ones who are devoured by these wolves, Lord. How we can protect ourselves from, from, from these false teachers. It's, it's very simple. Uh, but uh, a lot of people are being fooled, and we don't want to be the ones who are being fooled, Lord. And we can only, we can only uh, recognize your truth and see your truth and know your truth by the power of your Holy Spirit. And, Lord, that's true even today as we go through this study. So I ask that you anoint your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. When I de- sent David the title for the message this week, he reminded me that I'd used that title on uh, another occasion recently back in Second Peter, and I told him that I probably did, haven't used it just in Second Peter, I probably used it back in Acts and in the Gospels, because th- there's, this is a recurring theme, this idea of wolves among the sheep, and that's what Jude is going to talk about today. Uh, and it's interesting how he came to write about this subject because here's Jude, he's the half-brother of the Lord. I mean, this guy was an important guy in the church. He was one of those people, when, when he spoke, people listened. And I think that in his mind, before he left this earth, he wanted to write something that would be left behind for the church that would encourage and bless the church. And he was sitting down at his computer, and he was, and he was, well, at his, what did they use back then? You know, the, yeah, the pyrus. He was sitting at his pyrus, and he was about to write a letter to the church, and all of a sudden, an alarm went off in his soul, an alarm from the Holy Spirit. And, and, the, the, and the Holy Spirit was warning him of a terrible situation in the church that uh, there were wolves among the sheep and so Jude wants to sound the alarm and so he changes directions right in midstream you can see it in the very first verse that we're going to look at today and uh, he gives us this dire warning about uh, these wolves among sheep and so look with me beginning down in verse number three He says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write you concerning our common salvation. Now let me stop right there for a minute. When he was talking about our common salvation, was he talking about 
in the sense of an ordinary salvation? No, there's nothing ordinary about salvation. What he was saying here, I sat down to write to you concerning the salvation that we all have in common, the, the word of truth. And I wanted to talk to you about that. And, and, but, but I changed my mind. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. And then he tells us what that faith is all about, which was once and for all delivered to the saints. In other words, what he's saying here, Houston, we have a problem. We have a problem. There's, there's false prophets and false apostles who have gone out into the church and they're distorting they're, they're trying to change the unchangeable word. And what's the unchangeable word? The faith which was once and for all, look at the verse again, delivered to the saints by the prophets and the apostles. The faith that was once and for all delivered to the uh, saints by the prophets and the apostles. Where do we find that faith that was delivered once and for all to the prophets and the apostles? Now, Jude didn't have the 66 books. I don't think he knew it at the time, but he was writing one of them. But where do we find the faith that was delivered to us by the saints and the apostles? In the word of God. And now we have the full canon. When you talk about the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints, then you're talking about all 66 books of this Bible. And so Jude was saying we need to contend for the truth in this Bible, because there are wolves out there among the sheep, antichrist, false teachers who are trying to distort this word and change this word. And so it's the unchangeable word. And, it's, and, and you don't add to it, you don't subtract to it. Anyone who tries to distort it or add to it or subtract to it is a wolf. They're a false teacher. But that also goes for any prophecy that doesn't line up with this word, all 66 books of this word. Any word of wisdom that doesn't line up with all 66 uh, books of this word. Any interpretation of tongues, any interpretation of dreams, any dream you have. If it doesn't line up with the word, then it's not of God. Who is it of? Well, it's, it, either you ate something you, you shouldn't have eaten or it's of the devil. And so uh, Jude is saying, hey, these wolves, these false teachers are among us. Listen, the more and more we head to the last days, the more apostate the church becomes. And I got to tell you something, if that's true, and that's, that's a biblical truth that we're given by Paul, if that's true, and I, and I believe that we're in the very last days, then we're probably at a stage where there's more false teachers and wolves than there have ever been in the history of the church. And I believe that is absolutely true. So what do we do? I mean, all these wolves are among us. What do we do? Man, run for your life. That's what you need to do. And that's what a lot of Christians do. They just run away. No, that's not what we're supposed to do. What are we supposed to do? What, is, what does Jude tell us right here? We're to contend earnestly for the faith. We're to get in the fight. We're to contend for the faith. We're to study to show ourselves approved so we can contend earnestly for the faith. 
Now that Greek word for that phrase contend earnestly is the word agonize. What, guess what that is in English? Oh, y'all are good. Agonize. Exactly right. And, and it has a little prefix in front of it. It's got the prefix epi. If you know anything about the Greek, if you ever studied Greek at all, epi just means upon. And, and so it really literally means agonize upon agonize. In other words, fight with every ounce of strength that you have. That word agonize in the Greek was used for gladiators who fought in the arena and they, they fought, wrestled with one another to death. And so what Jude is telling us that that, hey, this is not going to be easy. and You're going to have to fight almost unto death to, in order to contend for the faith. Remember what Paul said in 2 Timothy. He says, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Not might suffer persecution. They will suffer persecution. And so that means that if you can stand for this word, you're going to suffer persecution. You're going to be in a fight. If you truly believe this word, as this word is given to us in these 66 books of the Bible, then get ready to fight. You're going to have to fight for what you believe. And, and you're going to have to, and here's, here's the, the scary thing or the troubling thing. You're going to have to have, have, uh, do, do this wrestling inside the church. Because where are the wolves? The wolves aren't out there. They're in here. They're in the church. And so when you want to stand on this word, you're going to face wolves. And the wolves are going to want to devour you. And so you're going to have to wrestle. You're going to have to wrestle just like a gladiator wrestled. But unlike Roman gladiators, guess what? You're not to kill the wolves. That's not your job. We're not called to kill the wolves. Who's going to kill the wolves? God's going to kill the wolves for us. And you look down at verse number four, and, and, and he says here that these men have been marked out for, uh, were marked out for condemnation from the very beginning. So, so God's going to take care of the wolves in the long run. So you don't have to worry about killing the wolves. You just have to worry about contending against these wolves. And you have to worry about not giving these wolves any credibility. This is why I'm not an ecumenalist. I don't, I, I, I don't, I, I will not involve myself or this church in activities with pastors or churches who have pastors who I believe are wolves. Now, I don't, I'm not going to sit here and call names, but if there's somebody out there preaching false doctrine and I involve this church in some activity that they're engaged in, then what am I doing? I'm giving them credibility. And I shouldn't be giving them any credibility. So I'm not going to join this church in works with other churches that are teaching, uh, that are apostate and are teaching heresy. I'm not going to do it. Now, if they're out there feeding the poor, they want some money to help feed the poor, we might give them the money for that. But in any activity that gives that pastor or that church credibility and it's a false church, an apostate church, then, then we're not going to be involved with them. But with that said, at the same time, we're to show a lot of love and patience to those who are being duped by these false teachers. I mean, if you know people in other denominations or other religions that you know are false, you don't attack them with a the word. That's not what you're supposed to do. You, you're to be ready 
to contend with them about the word, but you don't attack them. You know, sometimes as uh, conservative evangelicals, we confuse the word contend with contentious. We're not to be contentious with people. We're to contend for what we believe. We're to stand for what we believe. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians 4.15. He says, we're to speak the truth in love. Now, to speak the truth in love, you got to know the truth, right? So if you're a Berean and you know this word, then you're able to speak the truth. You're able to give a man an answer for, for every question they ask you about this word because you're in the word. And so uh, we're to speak the truth in love, even to our adversaries. And any church, any church that retreats is in grave danger. If, you don't, if a church does not stand on this word, then they will be devoured. It won't be long before the false doctrine comes in and permeates the church, and the church will no longer stand. Because look at what Jude says in verse number four. He says, for certain men, and he's, these men are like wolves in sheep clothing, they've crept in among the flock unnoticed. Now that's a sad thing right there. They crept in unnoticed. How, how, why were they unnoticed? Because the church wasn't prepared. A, a, a Christian who's not prepared, it, preparing himself or herself in the word is not going to recognize a wolf when they see one. They're not going to recognize false doctrine when they hear it. And so they've crept in unnoticed. I mean, I think there's some churches that started out really well with very good, fine Christian people. And then they kind of slid away from the word and they ignored the study of the word. And then all of a sudden these false teachers come in and they creep in and they're very subtle in the way they, they bring in their false doctrine. And, and it's, it's not blatant heresy, it's subtle changes that really create blatant heresy. And so they creep in. They don't just come running in and saying, Jesus is not God. They don't do that. They do it in a very subtle way. And so they creep in unnoticed. And listen to what he says, who long ago in eternity past, don't you worry about killing them. You don't have to kill them. They're marked for condemnation. We're going to see what kind of condemnation that is here in just a minute. They're ungodly men. They call themselves Christians, but they turn the grace of our God into lewdness or licentiousness, and they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that sounds awful similar to the warning that Paul gave us over in Acts chapter 21. Remember what Paul said? After my departure, savage wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. Men speaking perverse things and seeking to draw disciples to themselves. That's, that's their motive. It's all about them. It's all about power, fame, and fortune. That's, that's one of the ways you can recognize them. A false teacher is a hireling. They're not someone who is serving the flock, they're trying to fleece the flock. And so they're seeking to make disciples for themselves. And there's always that danger, and especially it's, it's Paul recognized it as a unique danger because there were a lot of people who looked up to the apostle Paul. And as long as Paul was there and he was writing these great letters with all of this rich doctrine, he felt that everything would be fine, but he tells these Ephesian elders, when I'm gone, 
when I'm not here to answer all your questions and, and to, to give you this pure doctrine for, coming from the Holy Spirit of God, you're going to have to stand on this word because there's going to be wolves that are going to come in among you who want to devour the flock. Paul's long gone now. So we have to ourselves go into these letters that Paul's written to us and we have to study these letters and absorb this doctrine and be ready to defend and contend for the faith. And so uh, anytime, anytime you have a dynamic pastor and that pastor leaves, you, you, you see this, this danger manifest itself in that situation. And the reason I'm, where I'm heading here is Chuck Smith. The Calvary Chapel was founded by Chuck Smith. What made Chuck Smith a great leader in the church, and I believe he started a movement that, that uh, was led by the Holy Spirit. And it, uh, you, if you talk about revival, I believe he, he was the leader of the Jesus movement, and, and, and God used him to lead a great revival in the United States. And he died three years ago, and before his death, I think he was basically, he didn't say it exactly like Paul said it, but I think he was basically saying the same thing. When I depart, he was saying to the pastors, when I depart from you, there are going to be savage wolves who are going to want to come into your midst and devour these churches, devour the flock. And to some degree, that's exactly what's happened in Calvary Chapel. And now we have this split. Because we have people who are hanging out with false prophets from other denominations and they're, they're wanting to move the church away from its roots into a more ecumenical situation. And so you're having this split. And so what he feared is exactly what has happened to some degree. Now it hasn't happened on a large part because... There's a way to defend yourself. And how do you defend yourself? By being in the word. And so those churches that will stay in the word and stand on the word will not be impacted by what's going on in Calvary Chapel. And as long as I'm here, then, then that's the way it's going to be at Calvary Chapel. We're going to stand on the word. We're going to teach the word and, and we're going to contend for the word. Now, he says, for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked for condemnation, ungodly man. Now look, look at what he says here. Who turned the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Donald Trump wants to build a wall. Amen. Somebody said amen. I don't know if I amen that or not. But why, why is he, he has several reasons for wanting to build that wall. But one of the reasons is to keep people out of the country or to keep people from pouring into the country who want to destroy this country. One of the reasons is to keep terrorists out of this country. And if we don't put up a wall in the church, these false prophets are going to come pouring into the church. And what's the wall? The wall is the word of God. 
Look, the devil has two main strategies for attacking the church, for attacking you. Two main strategies for attacking Christians. Number one, direct frontal assault. What do we call that? Persecution. Persecution. He persecutes the church. But you know what he's figured out? It didn't take long to figure it out. The more he persecutes the church, the stronger the church gets, the more the church grows. So that's really not his main way of attacking the church any longer. His main way of attacking the church is through doctrinal error. That's the main way. And so uh, that's the way that these, uh, that's the reason these wolves come into the church. And he has three tactics here, three tactics of doctrinal error, three types of doctrinal error he uses. One is legalism. Number two is denying, or, or number two is licentiousness. And number three is denying or distorting the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, why would he use legalism? Why would he use legalism? Well, legalism is like his favorite tool because legalism robs you of all the power of Jesus Christ. The Lord is not going to empower those who are trying to empower themselves. I can tell you that right now. He's not going to save those who are trying to save themselves. So if he can convince you that somehow you're good enough to save yourself or you, it's you plus Christ, if he can get you to convince you of that, then you're not going to get saved. If you are saved, if he can get you to drop into legalism, you're not going to have any power because you're going to try to do things in your own strength, and God doesn't honor that. God doesn't bless that. So legalism is like, man, that's like his favorite thing in the church. If he can get Christians to be legalistic, he can get them put, up, put, up, put back in a corner somewhere, and they can't do anything for the kingdom of God. And then there's, then the second thing that he uses is, and, and this is the one that Jude refers to here, he uses the, uh, going to the, the, the whole other side of the pendulum, he uses this attack where he convinces the church that grace equals lewdness or licentiousness. And you see a lot of this in the church. In other words, since we've been saved by grace, then no matter what sins we commit, they're covered by the blood, and all we have to do to be okay is with God is to confess those sins. That's all you got to do. In other words, you just you get saved, uh, you, you sin, uh, and, and the sin's covered by the blood. You confess that sin, and, and God's okay with you. Nothing about repentance. Nothing about the fact that God would much rather you uh, repent of your sin than confess your sin. So you have these people who basically say where grace abounds, sins abound. In other words, I can sin as much as I want because, because the blood of Christ covers my sin. And when I do sin, I can confess my sin and God's okay with it. And that's really all I have to do. And there's nothing of there in that kind of teaching about true repentance. Now, if you've been born again, you should know that where grace abounds, sin doesn't abound. It's, it's the opposite of that. We're new creations in Jesus Christ. We have the life of God in us. And so we live with moral restraints 
because the love of Christ compels us to live with moral strength and our very nature compels us to live with moral restraints. You know, if I'm born again, I don't want to sin. And, and, and yeah, when I, when I sin, I'm sorry and I say, Lord, I'm sorry. And so in, in that respect, I do confess that sin. But I'm not confessing that sin so I can go out and do it again. I'm confessing that sin so I can ask God to help me to never do it again. And, and, and so we, we are relying on the power of God to help us stop. We don't want to keep sinning. We, we want to, 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 to allow the very nature of God that lives in us, that divine nature, that new creation, to give us the power to not sin. Now, the reason the devil has so much success with that line of attack is because there's these false teachers preach a, I don't want to say an easy salvation, but they preach a benign salvation. Now let me explain to you what I'm talking about. There are preachers that say that if you get baptized as a baby, you're saved. In certain denominations, they say that. If you're baptized as a baby, you're saved. Well, we know better than that, right? Uh, are there some people who give invitations at the end of the service and they say, raise your hand and you're saved. If you raise your hand, you're saved. If you say the sinner's prayer, you're saved. If you come down the aisle at the end of the service, you're saved. And, and it might be that by saying a sinner's prayer, you, you, that's part of the process of you being saved. But saying a sinner's prayer or raising your hand or coming down the aisle or getting baptized does not save you. How are you saved? You must be born again. And so a lot of these preachers emphasize, their emphasis is on the method of salvation and not on the new birth. And that's why I emphasize so much the new birth. You must be born again. Look, if you say a sinner's prayer and you're, and you're not sincerely ready to give your life to the Lord, you're not going to get saved. I mean, just to recognize you're a sinner, most people recognize they're sinners. So to say, man, I'm a sinner, I'm sorry for my sin, uh, Lord, save me. If your heart's right, you can get saved with that prayer. But your heart has to be at a point where you're ready to give up your sin and give your life to the Lord. And so you have this sort of benign salvation and, and this emphasis on the method. And so you got a lot of people who are going through the process that they think saves them, and they're not truly getting born again. They're not truly getting saved. And, and that leads me to the devil's third line of attack, or his third error that he likes to bring into the church, and that is to deny or distort the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus, Jude puts it like this. Listen to what he says, going back to this verse. He says, denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me, let me read that again. Denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to look at that in your Bible and then let me give you the literal Greek translation here. Remember I told you back in the introduction to Jude that Jude has a very high Christology. I mean, that's interesting to me because he's, he's, he was Jesus' half-brother. I mean, he had seen Jesus in all the humility of his humanity, and yet he has this high Christology of Jesus Christ, who was his half-brother. Let me read you the literal, literal uh, translation of this part of this verse. He says, The only master God and Lord, 
our Jesus Christ. Let me read that to you again. The only Master, God, and Lord, our Jesus Christ. And the word master there is despotos, from which we get our English word what? Despot. He's a despot. Do you understand that the Lord is a despot? And we think of a despot in a bad connotation. We think of a despot as some ruthless dictator. Well, I got news for you. Jesus isn't ruthless in that sense, but he's a dictator. And the only way you can get saved is to recognize him as your dictator, as a despot in your life. The, let me read it to you again. The only master God and Lord, our Jesus Christ. So if you don't see him as such, then you're not born again. And so if your Savior has left anything less than Almighty God, then you're not saved. And that's why the Jehovah's Witnesses aren't saved. If you're a Jehovah's Witness here today, I'll tell you right now, you're not saved. Any Jehovah's Witnesses? I knew we didn't have any. If you're a Mormon, you're not saved. But even some evangelicals who've been toward a hyper-Trinitarian theology, I've got problems with, I, I wonder, let me put it this way, I wonder some about their salvation too. Because you have to come to a point where you see Jesus as your despot, as you see him as almighty God. That's who died for a cross on us. That's who, who lives in us. It's Christ in you, your hope of glory. Who is Christ in you? He is, as Jude said, he is the only master and Lord, our Jesus Christ, our despotos. And when you see Jesus as such, then that changes everything. I mean, your Savior is your God. Your Lord, he's your Lord, and you live for him. And you've got to be ready to live for him in order to get saved. It's not just raising your hand and going on with the rest of your life and thinking your sins are forgiven and one day you're going to get, a, you're going to, get to heaven because you've got this ticket now to get to heaven. No, you, you have decided to make Jesus your master and Lord and Savior and God. And when you do that, you can raise your hand or you can come down an aisle and you can say a sinner's prayer and you truly will be saved. But if, you're, if your Savior is anything less than Almighty God, then you're not saved. And I'll tell you what. If you're not saved, you're doomed. You're doomed. Want some bad news? You're doomed. If you're saved, you're not doomed. You want some good news? You're going you're gonna to live forever with, with your despotos, with, your, with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Look at the next few verses there in, in, in Jude. We'll finish with these verses. He says, but I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now I want you to note what I just said there, who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now there's a certain amount of angels that are still, uh, demonic angels that are still free uh, and still uh, uh, doing their havoc, but there's, there's a certain amount of them that are also in chains. Good thing that they're not all loose. And then in verse number 7, he says, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, having given them over to 
sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. You want a definition of hell right there? You got it. The vengeance of eternal fire. You know, I don't enjoy teaching about hell. But if I didn't teach about hell when it's given in the Bible, then what would I be? I would be a false teacher. You know, false teachers don't just give you false doctrine. They don't give you all doctrine. And so if they don't give you all the doctrine from Genesis to Revelation, they are a false teacher. You know, I would love to come every Sunday morning and preach from Romans chapter 8 every Sunday morning and never leave it. And they're almost named a name. There are certain preachers, uh, I was going to name one, that's what he does every Sunday. And he fills up a dome of, of people every week. And, and, and it would be real easy to grow a church if all you did was preach from Romans 8. And if you convince the congregation, that's all there is, is Romans chapter 8. I love Romans chapter 8. And Romans chapter 8 is every bit as true as Jude is. But if I don't warn the people that if you're not truly born again, you're, gonna, you're doomed to eternal fire in hell, if I don't warn them of that, then I'm a false teacher. And so we got to go through this, whether we like it or not. Now, let me say this before we get into those three verses. This is one of the favorite passages of those people who believe you can lose your salvation. And let me tell you why it's their favorite passage. Because you look back at verse number five, it says, you know, basically if you look at that, it says the Israelites were saved. Then they uh, rebelled and then they were destroyed. And everybody knows that the Israelites, the, the nation of Israel is like a type of the church. And so a lot of people will come to this passage and say, look, I can show you right here that uh, these people lost their salvation. I'm not going to get in, into defending eternal security day because that would take way too long. But listen, if you believe you can lose your salvation, don't use this passage to prove it because you'll only show your ignorance. And let me show you why. First of all, why were they destroyed? Because they did not believe. How do you get saved? By believing. So they did not believe, so that tells me they were never saved. And so, so you can't use this as a defense of, of the fact that you can lose your salvation. Actually, the Israelites never got saved. Did you know that? Never. Now, some Israelites got saved. There was a remnant of Israelites who got saved because they did believe. How many of them got saved out of the wilderness? Two or three. I would say probably a few more than that. Joshua, Caleb, and Moses got saved. And probably their families. But that was it. Two million of them went into the wilderness and, the, and they, all were, they all perished in their sins. And I believe more than likely they all went to hell. When do the Israelites get saved as a nation? Have they, are they saved now? A lot of people say, well, they, these, these are God's people. These, are, these people are saved. Listen, they're the apple of God's eye. Don't get me wrong. But they're not saved. Let me tell you when they get saved. We're heading that way on, 
in our study in the Minor Prophets on Wednesday night. We've been looking at this to some degree. And when they get saved is at the end of the Great Tribulation. You remember in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, when God, Jesus lands on the Mount of Olives, the Spirit of God is poured out on the nation of Israel, and they see the one whom they've crucified, and what's the word say? They believe. And when they believe, what does Paul say? All of Israel is saved. All of Israel will be saved, but they're not saved yet. And so these people are not a picture of people who got saved and then lost their salvation. Quite the contrary. Look at, look at who they're in company with here. They're in company with the demons, the demons who left their proper domain, and the sodomites. Were the sodomites saved? Were the demons saved? No. And so these Israelites weren't saved either. Now, in context, what Jude is doing right here, he is warning us against false teachers and their followers, those wolves among us. They're wolves is what he's saying. They're not sheep. And he uses these three cases as types of false Christians. First of all, and and that's why the warning is so important to the church. Because you want to see if you fit in one of these categories. Because if you fit in one of these categories, you're doomed too. Now you think about it, the Israelites to me were like the people who called themselves Christians. They left. I mean, they had a great deal. Remember for hundreds of years, they had cried out to the Lord, Lord, please deliver us. I mean, deliver us from this, this bondage we're in. And the Lord answered that prayer. He sent them Moses, the prophet, and Moses delivered them, and they crossed the Red Sea. And when they crossed that Red Sea, they were set free from bondage, set free to serve God and to put away their sin and to be the people of God. They were set free. They were set free from their sin. They were set free to serve God. But they didn't do it. Remember what happened? God said, hey, Moses, take them on into the promised land. And he took them right to the edge of the promised land, and they believed God and went right on in, right? No. They didn't believe God. They didn't believe him for one minute. And they said, man, we got to send. Here's where they made their mistake. They sent those spies in. If they'd just gone on in there and saw those giants, they would have gotten on their face and asked God to help them with those giants, and he would have done it. But no, they were, were going to check this out for They were going to make any move. And so they sent the 12 spies in, and the 10 of them came back with a bad report. And they said, we're not going in there. Look at all those giants. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes. And so they didn't go in because of what? Unbelief. They didn't believe. And going into the promised land would have been like a salvation event for them. If they had gone in and believed God at that point, everything would have been fine. But they didn't believe and they went out into the wilderness and they were destroyed in that wilderness. They perished. They lived a useless life. That's a picture to me of a so-called Christian who never gets the benefits of Christianity. They call themselves Christians. They go to church. They have a Bible. They they, they pretend to be Christians, but they never get into the promised land. They just wander around calling themselves Christians, and they're miserable. They don't get into the promised land, and they don't get, in the end, they don't get into heaven. How sad is that? And so you have the Israelites. That's one type. That's like, like people who go to church and, and give lip service to the Lord, but, but 
but they're never truly saved. But then you've got the demonic angels. I mean, these demonic angels that Jude mentions right here who refused to live within the boundaries that God had given them. What was their problem? They were full of pride. They were powerful beings. God was more powerful. They knew God was more powerful. But they were powerful beings, and they didn't want to submit to God. God gave them certain jobs to do. He gave them certain territory to, to occupy, and they, didn't, they said, we're not going to remain within those boundaries because we don't need you, God. And so they, their, their sin was that they were full of pride. They wanted to be their own gods. And so they rebelled, and God allowed some of them to still roam this earth, and then some of them he's put in chains and they're reserved for judgment. See, that's like people who call themselves Christians, but they've never really submitted to Jesus Christ. Listen, I don't believe you have to make Jesus Lord in order to be saved. I don't believe that because none of us would ever get saved. But once you do get saved, you submit to him. He becomes your Lord. He becomes your Lord. And that submission is a process. And, and, and we're, none of us are fully submitted to the Lord like we should be. But at least we're heading that direction. At least we want to be. We bow down to the Lord and we, we want his will. Look, I know a lot of Christians, really true born, truly born-again Christians, and they'll tell you they're fully submitted to the Lord, but then I watch what they do. They're not fully submitted to the Lord. If you're fully submitted to the Lord, then everything you have you give to the Lord. Everything, every. Every ounce of strength you give to the Lord. I mean, we want to be like that as Christians. And so, to some degree, we, we submit. I mean, but these people, these demons didn't submit, and they're like Christians who never truly submit to the Lord. Then there are the, the Sodomites. I mean... Think of the Sodomites. You remember when Lot and Abraham split, split up? Which, when they were looking out over the land, what was the best land of all? It was the land of Sodom. And Lot said, hey, that's where I want to go. So, I mean, here were the Sodomites, and they had all of these material blessings. I mean, they had this vibrant economy, and they were living in the most beautiful land on earth. They had this strong military, and yet they had no relationship with God. And because they had no relationship with God, they had no moral restraints. Let's read this, this verse again. He says, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. Now this is in the New Testament. When, when Jude is talking about going after strange flesh, he's talking about the same thing Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 1. Men lying with men, women lying with women. And, and that in God's eyes is an abomination. I don't care what the society of the United States says today or what the government of the United States says today. It is an abomination to, to the Lord. And look, look what happened to them. They, they suffered uh, the vengeance of eternal fire. That Fire and brimstone that came down on Sodom was like a picture of the fires of hell that are going to come down upon ungrateful people. These people without any moral restraint. 
I mean, those are people who call themselves Christians who sin that sin more or their sin abounds so that grace may abound. That's not biblical. That's false doctrine if you believe that you can sin, that your sin can abound so grace can abound. And that's and and people who do that are no different than the Sodomites, and they're in the same heading for the same destination as the Sodomites. Now, so how do we spot these wolves among us? One is unbelief. They really don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not the only master God and Lord, our Jesus Christ to them. He's not that. They don't really make Jesus their Lord. That's number one. Number two, we spot them by their pride. I mean, he's going to get into this at the latter part of the book. You, you, you can spot these guys. I mean, they have a lot of pride. You can spot false teachers. They have a lot of pride. And you can spot them because they're void of gratitude. They really don't, aren't grateful to the Lord. And you also can spot them. And I, I, I've seen this over and over again. When I've seen somebody who I believe is a false teacher, they have no moral restraint. They end up doing something that you just couldn't imagine they would ever do like going to a brothel, being caught in a brothel, and one of the pastors is reporting on the guy who's caught in the brothel, then come to find out he's been to the same brothel himself. And so when you see that, hey, I got news for you. That's probably a false teacher. Anybody can fall, but those people that, that live in a pattern like that of immoral behavior, they are a false teacher. So they're void of, they, they're, they're, they have unbelief, they have pride, they're void of any gratitude, and they lack moral restraints. And if anyone fits into one of those categories, they're false Christians, and they're going to wind up where the demons and the sodomites go, the place we call hell. So once we spot a false teacher or a false Christian, what do we do? How do we contend with it? I'll tell you how you contend with them. You have to be in the Word of God. You have to be a student of the Word of God. The unadulterated Word of God has to be taught and studied so that we have the mind of Christ. And if you have the mind of Christ, these guys aren't going to fool you. And if you, to have the mind of Christ, you have to abide in this Word. And what is His Word? It's the Word that was delivered once and for all to the saints. It's unchanging. It doesn't change. It's not evolving. It's true from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And, and if you don't believe it, the whole thing, then, then you might as well throw away the whole thing. This is God's word. If you're here today and you don't know this is God's word, the only reason you don't know it's God's word is because you're not born again. That's another way you can spot false teachers. People who say some of this is true. Man, get as far away from this as you possibly can. And, and, if, and if you can hear that and not be bothered by that, then you need to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Because as a born-again believer, you don't understand how God created the heavens and the earth in seven days, but you know that's true. 
You don't know how Jesus was virgin born, but you don't know, but you, you don't know how he was virgin born, but you know that's true. You know these, you know that every single word of this is true. And if you don't believe that, I gotta tell you, you're not saved. And you're on a path to hell. And hey, we want you to turn around. And all you have to do to be saved is say to the Lord, Lord, I will believe. I will believe if you will show me that you are Almighty God. If you will show me that your word is true, I will put my faith, my total faith, in you and in your word. You do that, you'll get born again, and you'll never look back. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for our Savior, our God, our Lord, Jesus Christ, our Master, our Commander. Father, we just ask today that, that uh, you help us to be the kind of Christians who are empowered to contend for your word. Lord, not in a contentious way, Lord, but in a loving way. Help us to speak truth in love, Lord. We can only do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, if there's anyone here today who, who doubts your word, who doubts uh, the great plan that you have for their lives through Jesus Christ, Lord, I ask today that you open up their hearts to just try, test you, Lord, to try and see that you are true, to try and see that your word's true. Lord, because I know that, that, that if they do, that uh, they'll be saved and they'll never look back. Lord, we don't want to see anyone go to hell. It's a real place, Lord. Your word speaks of hell. Your word speaks of the vengeance of hell. But Lord, through Jesus Christ, we're delivered from hell and, and we've been given life eternal, Lord. A blessed life. The life that you've planned for us but in the eternity past if we'll just trust in Christ. So it's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. Softly and tenderly Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. See on the portals he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me.
come to remember his death on the cross and his resurrection and to commune with him and I just want to remind you before we do that today of just who he is listen again to what Jude says the only master God and Lord our Jesus Christ the only master God and Lord our Jesus Christ that's whose body was broken for you. That's whose blood, blood was shed for you. That's who we remember today. That's who we commune with today. And we'll commune with him forever. As Paul says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Y'all want to stand and we'll close on a song. 